The Midwife Crisis podcast will touch on sensitive topics regarding the human body, sexuality, pregnancy, and all aspects of women's health care and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hi, I'm PR. And I'm Kate, and this is season two of the Midwife Crisis podcast because it's not just you. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, our friend and fellow midwife, Shoshana. Shoshana is a well-known and beloved midwife in our community who I'm lucky enough to work with and learn from. She was known to me well before I ever met her because I would do OB care for some of her patients, and they'd come to me and be like, listen, you're great, but, you know, Shoshana is my person, and I cannot stay with you because I have to return to Shoshana. Whoa, that's a hard act you're following there. Um, Welcome, Shoshana. So happy to have you here. We do go back a little bit. Um, I was aware of Shoshana and her full scope practice as a new grad in the community. And I remember thinking, what a cool name, (laughs) before even finding out what a cool, calm, collected, and strongly skilled midwife she was. Um, But we have just... We have just as important a claim to fame, and that is that our daughters um, were friends and went to school together. Now, they are long out since out of high school and art school, but um, I always thought that was pretty cool. In today's episode, we're hoping to demystify breast cancer. So those of you who have it or have known someone who is a thriver or are curious um, We want you to feel that it's not just you. And so, Shoshana, a couple of things first we ask our guests to do is to share your pronouns and tell us a little bit about yourself and your midwifery journey before we get into the meat and potatoes. Okay. It's so nice to be here. I'm really glad you guys invited me, and I'm especially happy to have a chance to sit across the table with PR, who I don't get to see nearly enough, and next to Kate, who I do get to see, but of course it's never enough. (laughs) Uh, My midwifery journey, I always like to say, started um, in a very unlikely place, which was Harvard University, which is where I went for undergraduate education. And I was... I told you she was smart. (laughs) It it wasn't that big a deal back then, but, you know, I am pretty smart, but it wasn't as big a deal then as it is now. But while I was there, I was studying history of science, and I ended up focusing on history of medicine, and I um, concentrated on... American history of medicine, and I learned about midwives. Um, And I was interested in doing some kind of healthcare, but I didn't want to go to medical school for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that when you're at Harvard and you meet pre-medical school students there, you really don't want to spend the next 12 years. (laughs) I'm sorry if I've offended anybody, but it's just a fact. Um, but, But when I learned about midwives, I was really excited. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. Now, of course, I had an education in history. And so I had no idea what it was going to be like being a nurse. And at that time, that meant, you know, bedpans, bed changing, all this Mm -hmm. stuff that you do, you learn in nursing school. But it turned out to be fabulous. So but that's really where when I learned about public health nurses and midwives in 19th century America, that's where I got my Mm -hmm. my start. Like Mary Breckenridge, that yep, and the women who you know in New York City would come into you know the homes of new immigrants and deliver mm-hmm. babies on the table with some newspaper underneath and mm-hmm. bring care to the people who needed it um, without a lot of hoops to jump through. Right, that's fascinating. I didn't know that about you. That's so cool. I didn't know it either. So it is cool. Yeah, that was my origin story. I love that. And then where did you do your midwifery training? Then I came to Yale. I went to the three-year program. Mm -hmm. So for people like myself who had degrees that were not in medical or nursing fields. um, And, you know, just was kind of a leap of faith. Again, I had done a little bit of volunteer work at a local women's health clinic, but I really had no idea what I was getting Mm into. And um, the program was you know, everything I needed. It yeah. was just a great experience and a great immersion. And of course, meeting wonderful uh, fellow students and professors. That is awesome. And I just want everyone to know that that means that I am in the midst of two women who both went to two Ivy League institutions. <laughs> I'm state school girl. So if anyone's feeling uh, a little intimidated, don't worry, you can still you can still do it. Without being Ivy League, but that's so amazing. You guys it's are not like, just oh, you. hard eyes. Exactly. Right. You certainly do not need to go to Ivy League schools <laughs> no, to deliver babies. To to Ivy League schools, for sure you don't. 
And I also have a degree in Latin American history. So it, it just go. goes to show if the drive, persistence, and the desire is there, it can be done. You got to answer the call. Yeah, especially if you have a call. Um, so while Shoshana, as we know, is a bona fide wealth of knowledge and expertise, uh, I've come to think of her in my practice, um, which is now all GYN, as sort of the breast chest health expert. You know, I'll go grab her and, you know, ask for her input with different patients. Um, because, again, as we've said, she's not only an awesome provider, wife, mom, she's a yogi, she bakes, friend, you know, all those things. She is also a two-time breast cancer survivor. Um, and according to breastcancer.org, breast cancer became the most common cancer globally as of 2021. It's most commonly diagnosed cancer among American women. And about one in eight U.S. women, so 13%, will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. And we'll get a little bit later into the, into the podcast about statistics and as they relate to our special populations. Um, if you wouldn't mind, Shoshana, Sh Shoshana she. Yes. Shoshana Shi. Okay. <laughs> Shoshana, um, would you tell us a little bit about your journey? Now we know your journey with midwifery, but your journey with breast cancer, like when and how were you diagnosed each time? Because I think that that's really important for listeners who, um, those who know someone or who themselves are, are survivors, but also people who are wondering. Mm-hmm. So um, my first diagnosis was when I was 46. And even though I kind of knew that I was going to get breast cancer eventually, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later, I felt really mad that it happened in my 40s because mm -hmm. I thought that's just the, you know, the prognosis isn't, isn't as good. Plus, it's just a drag. Um, I had been having uh, biopsies and extra mammograms for years. Ah. Starting when I was 26, I had various oh, benign wow. lumps and things excised and things biopsied. I always used to joke that I've had, I think I've had every single breast procedure that there is other than a tram flap or one of the flap mm. reconstructions, mm -hmm. but all the diagnostic tests. Mm -hmm. And that was a way for me to be an even better clinician for my patients because mm -hmm. I could then say to them, oh, you're going to need a needle biopsy. And this is exactly what mm -hmm. that means. For sure. So, you know, fast forward to years of biopsies and abnormal mammograms, and then I felt something, and I thought, this doesn't feel right in my own breast. Mm -hmm. And um, I had it looked at. I can't remember now the sequence of events, because that was a while ago, but it was biopsied, and it was cancer, and it was an invasive cancer surrounded by a lot of DCIS, the in-situ cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so that began the process that anybody who's had cancer knows, which is the time of information gathering, question answering and asking, and making decisions. Mm -hmm. And the woman, the doctor who had been my surgeon and had done a lot of the, my biopsies, um, was one of the people I was talking to. And But some of it you just kind of have to go through on your own. Luckily, I work with, are we allowed to say people's names? I mean, I probably, I mean, but. Emily, yeah. My <laughs> boss, Emily Fine, who basically if you're of on her team, her props. if you're in her family or in on her team, she will take you as far as you need to go. Mm -hmm. So she arranged for me to have, she said, I really think you should have genetic testing before you make a decision about what to do with your breasts. Mm -hmm. Because um, I was faced with, you know, mastectomy, uh, lumpectomy, what to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we'll talk a little. We're going to break that question, down a little bit. Be, before you go further, were you doing regular um, self-exams? I was. I was. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was pretty good about that. Good. Um, okay. I was just curious. Although, you know, it is weird when you find a lump and you're like, but I just checked this. And it what like, uh, does it just pop up like that? Right. I don't think mm -hmm. so. But whatever it was, that moment. And I, that's why I always tell patients, because patients are always like, well, what am I looking for? Right. And I'm like, it's not that you're looking for something. It's that you're knowing what your breasts exactly. feel like. When something so is something different. Changes. Being very right. familiar with them. Right. And I've had that with patients, with their partners, yes. who have revealed something. Yes. Because they they're used in their intimate processes. And so then... I believe those are called fun bags. <laughs> I don't think that's what they're called. I don't. A clinical term. <laughs> in our house, we call them tetas. But anyways, <laughs> uh, th yeah, they would say, you know, my partner felt something. Yeah, no, that happens. I hear he that a lot. She, they, they notice. And so I came in, can you please check this out? 
Mm-hmm. I've been amazed sometimes at the things that partners can find, but yeah. they must be attentive. You yeah, know? and they it's know the cool. body. Yeah, you know, if you have a decent relationship, they're paying attention to you. So I had also. been checking. I had been getting mammograms yearly. It was probably almost a year till I was due. It was like a year since my last mammogram when oh. I found this lump. But so it's you know, coming up on the time. But the thing that freaked me out was that the DCIS area was not visible. Mm-hmm. on the mammogram and it was apparently quite large and Do you so mind that had probably explaining a little bit for our listeners DCIS so just really quickly DCIS is they call it either stage 0 cancer or um, non-invasive cancer it's an area of abnormal cells mm-hmm. they are cancer they're not really precancerous they they are classified as mm-hmm. cancer but they haven't escaped the little area that they're mm. in so they're not likely to go to lymph mm-hmm. nodes i personally don't make a big distinction between it and invasive cancer because I've now seen so many people mm-hmm. with so many variations of right. how things go. Like, oh, I only had DCIS, but the next thing you know, I had a something else in the other breast. And right. so it's cancer. It should be taken seriously. Right. And you have options mm-hmm. like you do with invasive cancer. The good news is it's very rare to find anything in the lymph nodes or more distant disease mm-hmm. with it. So that's a good thing. So I had a little bit of both. Um, that was your first round. That was my first round. Okay. So the genetic testing was negative, which uh-huh. was great, because uh-huh. I, which I had because my mother and her mother also had breast cancer. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and an aunt on my father's side. So I had it in my family big time. Mm. But the, the genetics were, ne- were negative. But the person who did the genetic screening, Ellen Matloff, who um, is also, you know, an angel for me, said, listen, Given what I know, what you've told me about all of this, the biopsies, the this, the that, you have a, like a 30% chance at least of getting another breast cancer. And while this one is pretty low grade and is probably going to be cured, I can't guarantee that that will be your future, mm-hmm. which is a hard thing to say to somebody. But I was really, really glad she did. because well, that's daunting to hear, too. It yeah. is daunting to hear. But once you hear it, it's like, OK, I'm 46. I have two young kids. Mm-hmm. Um I'd like to be around for a while. I think that probably removing the breast tissue is going to give me the best shot at that because I've been through having biopsies once a year, once every six months. I've been going through this for literally for a decade or two decades. I don't really want to do that anymore. I want to stop worrying. And mm-hmm. you weren't planning on like breastfeeding. I wasn't going to be breastfeeding or, any more children. And yeah. I'm married to a man who's totally accepting of who I am, no matter what. You know, it's mm-hmm. totally different people have different issues, of course. Mm-hmm. And I've mm-hmm. talked to lots of women who have different feelings about mm-hmm. their bodies and preserving their breasts. But for me, it felt like I this I've already spent so much time and energy on these things. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call them, I'm not, fun bags. I mean, I might call them <laughs> pain in the neck bags or something. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I don't really call them fun bags either. But I, just, I wanted to say that. We're more of a boob family. We just call them boobs. So when I went to my, back to my surgeon and said, I think I'm going to have a bilateral mastectomy, she was like, oh, I'm so glad you decided to do that. Oh. She wasn't going to suggest it because yeah. I guess, and that was... Kind of um, aggressive, no? It was, kind of, well, for what no, I... not for what, your situation, but just in terms of suggesting it right I off I think also at that point, I guess it was in the, it was like 2000-something, mm-hmm. or something. You know, surgeons were had been accused of being over-aggressive mm-hmm. and recommending mam- mastectomy. And it doesn't really, I mean, I'll, we can talk about this also later, it doesn't decrease your risk of death. It doesn't really change your, along uh, your outcome, necessarily Hmm. unless you're like one of these people with gene positive genes and you're Mm going to do a lot of surveillance but for the particular cancer you have if they just take it out and you get treated that cancer is not going to come back any less often if you have the breast removed Hmm. but it meant that i didn't have the other breast to worry about right or other parts of that breast which had already been giving me trouble so that was really telling to Mm -hmm. have the doctor react that way Mm -hmm. but it confirmed my decision. decision. And mm-hmm. it felt pretty drastic. But once I made the decision, I didn't really look back at all. And i that's partly me. I compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. You know, I could say this is what I need to do to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like you said, I'm not going to breastfeed. I'm not going to be a model. I'm not going <laughs> to whatever. A breast model. A breast anyway. model. Yeah. <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not in the cards for me. So how about the second time? The second time really knocked me on my butt because that was 2017. 2017, so three years ago, four years ago now. Um, I've had no boobs for years. I had, you know, I had implants and, you know, reconstruction. And 
I found a little something under my other armpit. Mm. And at first I was like, oh, it's just a little skin thing. Mm. And I had everybody who was in the medical field who I either knew or saw as a patient <laughs> feel it. Mm-hmm. So my primary care, I love that. my GYN, <laughs> the only person who thought it was suspicious was my skin person, who's oh. an, a- an APRN. And she's like, I don't think that's a cyst. Mm-hmm. I think you probably should have that checked out. Being me, I waited a little bit. And then I tried to get into Yale where I'd had my care. And, of course, any of you who've dealt with Yale know that once you have a breast cancer diagnosis, they get you in. They're wonderful. They Mm -hmm. take really good care of you. Mm -hmm. Until that point, it's like going in a maze that has no entry and no exit. Mm -hmm. You're just going around and talking to different people. So I was like, oh, this you have to have imaging. Mm -hmm. So I had imaging. I had, I guess I had an MRI and an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Nothing showed up. Oh, they didn't want anything to do with me at Yale. So I said, I'm going to go see a private surgeon and just get this thing out because it's driving me nuts. Right. right. And um, so I went to Kay Zuckerman, who I always like to give a shout out to because she is Kay. super awesome. Mm-hmm. My hero. Totally. One hundred percent. She ultrasounded it. She excised it. She also didn't think very much of it. But, you know, she's like, I think it's good to get rid of it. And a week later, she called me and I'm sitting in a parking lot and she said, you have cancer. There's cancer oh. in that breast. And it's a totally different cancer than what you had in your other breast. This was a lobular. That was a um, ductal. Um, Did you tell her, wait, this is someone else's assignment. I already had this I know. Well, I said said a very bad word, which I will not say in your podcast. Um, Oh, well, we're explicit. And then, okay, because I felt bad because I didn't know Kay. I didn't know Kay very well. And I thought she could be a very proper person. But I was like, fuck, (laughs) that is not okay. And I really went into a tailspin. Uh, yeah. I because bet. it was like everything you think you've done to take care of this problem, it's not enough. Right. And I don't mean to scare people. I always joke. If people ask me my story, I usually start by saying, I'm everybody's worst nightmare. This doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But it's a crappy story. Yeah. yeah. You're not supposed to have your breasts removed and then get breast cancer again. That's like just not cool. That's a fascinating (laughs) story and people need to know that. So you're not the only person that that's happened to. Oh, I know that. I hope someone who knows someone is listening. There's so many patients that I see or that we know of that are non-binary or trans that get their um, breasts removed and they have chest reconstruction. And I think, well, and... I've got this added benefit of I'm not going to get breast cancer, but right. you still can. Right. I mean, their re- their risks are reduced. Right. But they're not zero. Yes. And I have heard them say that. I've yeah. had heard patients. Well, of mine. sure. I I mean, I really thought I was done. I was yeah. like, well, something else is going to get me. I can be very dark, and I know I'm going to die. <laughs> but I was like, it's not going to be breast cancer. And then it turned out, maybe it is. So you had talked about that you had surgery, obviously, the mm-hmm. first go around. Yep. What other treatments did you have? So for those who are not familiar, there are uh, there's chemotherapy, there's um, biotherapy, there's hormone therapy, there's radiation. So there's all different. And with surgical, there's not just mastectomy. There's lumpectomy. Right. So there's all different types of um, sort of treatment um, options. So we'd love to hear. So I had... Um mastectomy and they had done a, a sentinel node biopsy. They had only taken a couple of nodes from that ar- underarm and they were both negative. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um, and because the tumor was quite small, although it was when you added up all the little tumors, it was big and the DCIS itself was big, but they decided that I did not need to have radiation or chemo. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I went on tamoxifen for five years. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, yeah, so I had surgery and tamoxifen. I felt great about dodging the bullet of radiation and chemo particularly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I still stand by that decision because it wouldn't have helped this other thing because this is a totally other side. Right. Other, right. So what, what um, with your reconstruction, what kind of went into your decision? I've seen some mm-hmm. beautiful photographs of women who have had reconstruction, who have not had reconstruction, still gorgeous art art forms basically mm-hmm. yeah. and so but it's startling for folks who aren't it it's very startling it's not our it's our line of work but it's very startling like i remember sharing the pictures yeah. with my family and um and they were like why are you showing that to yeah. us yeah yeah i mean i have some patients who've not had any reconstruction and i'm even a little startled at mm-hmm. times and so uh it's interesting i think the surgeon at the time when we were i was going over my options she said, it's just kind of sad when you see 
a woman's <laughs> chest with nothing there. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't even have nipples. When they do the mastectomy, yeah, right. they take everything off. I felt like I wanted to feel whole in a bathing suit and sure. doing yoga. Mm-hmm. Shape. I, the shape. The shape. The basic shape. I didn't think I would ever be the kind of person who would like um, to use... What are they called? A prosthesis. A prosthesis, thank my you. Nana, yes. My, my nana aunt had used one. to have them. So yep. did my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I remember you'd be, throw that heavy thing in the bra and then try to get yeah. the other arm in. And... and I was just imagining it being like heavy and sweaty and moving yeah. around and being embarrassing. So I was like, I just want to look like myself in clothes and in a bathing suit. Yeah. So I did a simple... Um, saline implants. Mm -hmm. I also didn't want it, like I know enough of medicine, I knew that if you did like a tram flap, they were going to cut your belly muscles. Sure. At that point, I was a pretty serious yoga practitioner and I'd been spending my whole life trying to get strong abdominal muscles. (laughs) And I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to have them cut those. And Anyway, and it's a much, it's a different kind of recovery. And I wanted to get back to my life. I had two kids. Ariel was um, 12 and my son was maybe 16 or something. so that I, I just didn't feel like I had the time to and I didn't want to do that. So I felt good about that as well. I have to say I try not to comment on people's bodies. But one time at work, um, Shoshana was in a like zip up thing. And I was like, whoa, you look so like busty in this. And I didn't know <laughs> that she had ever had breast cancer. And someone was like, well, someone else we work with was like, yeah, it's those it's those, you know, implants those or whatever. And implants. I, was like, I was like, really? Because I, they're very natural <laughs> yeah. looking. So I do have to say they can look really natural. They can. I mean, I've seen some women who've had beautiful, you know, flap reconstructions that are just incredible. And you think, yeah, if I was 26, maybe Mm -hmm. I would have opted for that um, because it would be very important how I looked naked and Mm -hmm. all this because they never they never look 100 percent like your original breasts. They just don't. And so the flap reconstruction for people who are wondering, I mean, you can look at it and this is not specific, but basically they use your own tissue tissue and like muscle sort of pull it abdominally and kind of pop it up. So first they do expanders, which is basically they put something under the chest. Did you have to have that too? I did have to have expanders. Um, to sort of like stretch the skin in the area where the either implant's going to go or the flap. And then um, with the flap, I think it's, is it muscle? I can't remember. I think it's probably a combination. Yeah. Um, but they sort of kind of pull everything up. And so you do get this really tight um, sort of constant pull in your core. And um, I remember caring for some of those patients when I was a new nurse. And, and the nursing really care, painful. I mean, the care afterwards the post-surgical care is very can be very delicate yeah um, because you've now you're reattaching blood vessels and uh, I think nerve maybe not nerves but blood Mm. vessels and the skin healing it's all very you have to be really careful and a lot of women have to have revisions done it wasn't for me Mm. but it's all it is really you can get a really amazing result um, from those now you don't have to answer anything you're not comfortable with but i'm just curious um do you have any areola like do you have a tattoo or anything or nothing oh i have um i have little nipples that Mm -hmm. that the plastic surgeon created because partly because my daughter (laughs) said to me (laughs) you know this is kind of intense you've got a 12 year old she's just growing her boobs yeah and you're 46 and you're losing your boobs And she said, Mom, a breast without a nipple is like a face without a nose. And I was like, you're kind of right, you know. So I did that. I didn't do any of the tattooing Mm. because, again, I mainly just wanted the idea of of the nipple (laughs) to be there. Yeah, it's... um, that's, that's, a, that's that's an so artist's sweet. way of looking at things. Yeah. Very visual, a visual yeah. artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are some women who will have that sight tattooed, not for nipples, right? But just as art for that. I have seen some beautiful tattoos. Yeah, yeah. That's totally. That's what I told Shoshana. I was like, if that it's ever happens remote. to me, I'm gonna get like some cool like armor. Yeah, like, no, it's an, it's impressive. Some, like Viking thing tattooed on me, and I'm never wearing a shirt again. Yeah. Okay. You here we go. <laughs> If I have to lose my boobs, never wearing a shirt again. Just quote me on that. Wow. I'm going to try to remember that. That's a, that's good. It's so interesting how people, um, how you just, your image, your self-image, how that plays into yeah. a part of your making, decision-making. Because I definitely would get some some implants mm. that, that don't have to be slung over my shoulder when exactly. I get dressed. <laughs> exactly. The rest of me is just falling down. But yeah. these implants, very perky. They'll be till, <laughs> till the very end, I imagine. And, you know, another thing is when I first got the diagnosis the first time, my 
first thought was, I am not losing my breasts. Mm. I am not going there. Mm. But it was a process and getting mm-hmm. thinking about it and having the genetic testing and thinking about what it would mean to go through this again someday. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I really changed and I felt totally comfortable with my decision. Yeah. But it is that was my very first reaction was like, oh, no, we're you, not. You ready had to for go that. through it and oh, you yeah. used your breasts to nourish your babies. Yep. And, yep. you know, they're, right. like you said, they're part of your silhouette. And, you know, well, sometimes you have fond memories, your partner, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, it's it's um, it's an amputation. It is an amputation, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's really important that people understand that mm-hmm. it's it's not it's a part of who we are. Not even from a sexual perspective, just of your entire your, your body. body. Like if you want to take entirety, yeah, don't take my pinky finger either. Right. Right. <laughs> well, make sure you don't owe certain people any money. <laughs> <laughs> and then you won't get your finger chopped off. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That is. But it is an amputation. And it's. Uh, I'm glad you said that because one of the conversation, the, one of the things I'm struck by with my patients is women are really strong and we put up with a lot. Yes. And women do come to this. When you have a cancer diagnosis, a lot of women come to this place of like, this is what I'm going to do. I know it's kind of sad, but I'm not going to go there. I just have to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they don't really look back. Right. Because why would you or how could you and how do you go forward if you're also looking back? Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm very impressed because even women who you think are going to be really, it's like, oh, gosh, she's going to just fall apart. They get they get themselves back together and they do what they got to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. You want to survive, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. desire to survive and to do it in a manner that's going to be. Um, loving and helpful, hopefully, for your family members as well. It's not just your decision by yourself. It is, but, you know, you want, like you said, you want to be around for your children. So Mm -hmm. that plays a part. If you just say, no, I just want to hold on to the girls until I go. I don't care if I go when my daughter's 14. So who would say, no, who would say that? that? So, um, but I do know that, you know, if, if people think that, you know, well, you know, that's aggressive. Why not lumpectomy and that kind of thing? And there are many, many factors that play a part in starting with your diagnosis, but also just your future. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, what kind of future you would like to see right. yourself having. Yeah. So I think that that's um, that bears mentioning. Um, so anyways, do you have anything else you want to share? We're going to get into some and we want you to contribute to this part, too. We're going to get into some stats about our special populations. But um, any, any I other? think we're good. Keep, okay. keep it moving, girlfriend. <laughs> well, um, I will say one thing. When I had my second diagnosis, I did have to have radiation. Oh. oh. So that is interesting. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. <laughs> because, and I don't remember now what the rationale was. Maybe just that it came back like that. It was so mm. weird, and it was in a weird place. And there were, and she when she went in there, there were a bunch of little tiny seeds of cancer. So she Ooh. took it all out. She took most of the lymph nodes out, and um, in the process, kind of ruptured my implants. So I got a, had to have new implants oh, put geez. in. Wow. Yeah. Although they probably they were probably were, due anyway. Reached their limit. <laughs> <laughs> they had reached their limit, maybe. Yeah. And radiation is not fun. It no. turns out. No. Not fun. No, I have patients who have had symptoms in different parts of their bodies where the radiation did not even occur, and they're just really uncomfortable. Yeah, and then you're, even the nicest radiation oncologist will tell you, I don't think that's from the radiation. I would get, like, nausea. Yeah. Now, to me, it makes sense that if you're radiating up here in the right. armpit and chest area, that some of those rays are not don't know that there's a boundary, yeah. and they're going to get to your there's esophagus no or your stomach. Mm-hmm. But um, I was told, no, I won't know. The way we're doing it, it's very directed, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, when I stopped radiation, I stopped having the nausea. And it wasn't like anxiety nausea. Right. It, was, it was just a physical thing. Mm-hmm. And it's really tiring. When people talk about being tired, it's after like radiation. a kind of tired like you have after you have a baby or mm-hmm. surgery. Fatigue-ish. Fatigue. Fatigue, mm-hmm. 7.30 at night, your eyes are closing, you have to go to bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think of it as like if you're ever in the sun all day, because it's it's that's heat, right? And yes. that's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, that those that's a happy kind of tired, right. but it's still a tired. Yeah. Right, and I kind of thought of it as your cells, your entire body is now working to do something with the cells that have be- that are being destroyed by the radiation. They have yeah. to be processed, right. and it just takes a tremendous amount of physical energy to do that. And, it, yeah, and so you have to rest a lot. Them. Yeah, no, and 
I imagine. And pay attention. So I've had patients come as GYN patients and say, my radiologist said this is not anything that has to do with them. And I'm thinking, and so whenever else did you get these uncomfortable right. sores or whatever it is on your genitalia? Yeah. And so it's very We do a good job of telling people, but especially women, that, that their symptoms are not what the, they perceive them to be, you know? And it's frustrating because how, how do we know specifically? We don't. Right. We're looking at this overall grouping and retrospective studies and, right. you know, associations. But you can't, you know, know every micro, you know, piece of each person to know what they're going to feel or not. And so I always say when people ask me, I mean, not about radiation, but about birth control or different things where they're like, is it possible that I feel X, Y, and Z? I'm like, it is always possible for yeah, sure. Because we listen. That's true. That's true. We listen. Yeah. And that, we're, we're, you know, we're taught, trained, and sort of And we're curious because that's listen. why we went into this, right? Yes. We had a curiosity and a desire to listen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we hear them, and then we actually, over time, can make correlations that people are not because there's mm -hmm. not listening. Yeah, and we know correlation is not causation, but still, no. it's and like we, it's, yeah, we're able to say, yeah, you know, there's a possibility. And even if it's just psychosomatic and you're just like, maybe you are just doing that, let's remove it and see. But it's helpful for people to know that they aren't the only one, right. as, as our tagline says. And so... Even you, like you said, it's not causation, it's not research, but it helps when I can say, you know, what? I have two other patients who have the same complaints mm -hmm. after having that particular issue. So you're not, you know, right. neurotic and you're not, you may be neurotic about something else, <laughs> but this is legit. Um, okay, so I think we should take a really quick break. Okay, and that then, sounds good. Yeah. And then we can get into the other stuff, which we hope that Shoshana will jump right in also since she is a provider. She'll jump in. She's I'll the best. In. She'll dive right in. I'm a in. jumper. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Hello, my name is Josh Levinson from the Between Two Rocks podcast here at Baobab Tree Studios, and I want to share all of the wonderful people I know in New Haven with you. From restaurant owners to painters, photographers to small business owners, political activists and city officials, we discuss issues you care about and then make fun of them. Join us the Between Two Rocks podcast wherever you get podcasts today. Okay, and we are back with the midwife. Mid midwife. <laughs> Were you Sorry. drinking on the break? <laughs> little little drink break. No, uh, with the midwife crisis podcast, we are in season two, and we have a really cool discussion today with our special guest Shoshana talking about breast cancer. Um, and as usual, we'd like to address the impact our, in our unique communities. Um, when we speak to midwifery care, we always try and t uh, talk about that in our podcast, and so we want to do it today with regard to breast cancer. Um, you know, when I was doing some of the research, I saw this really cool uh, site called the Sisters Network, which is a national breast cancer survivor organization founded by Karen Jackson. And they have been working actively to investigate why fewer black women are screened and why, you know, why there are differences in the treatment and why more are dying than um, the white population. So apparently black women have a lower incidence rate but are more likely to die than their counterparts. Hmm. And 41%, according to her, their research, are more likely to die um, than white women. And black women um, are also more likely to develop the disease at a younger age and have more aggressive forms like triple negative. Um, do you want to explain triple negative or I can? It's up to Oh, I can do it. I'm nodding because I know that to be a fact and I find mm -hmm. it disturbing and interesting yeah. um, because triple negative breast cancer is, to my mind, it's almost like a different entity. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about positive and negative, they're talking about receptors on the cells. Mm -hmm. And the receptors that they look at are estrogen, progesterone, mm -hmm. and HER2. Mm -hmm. And if you have, if you're positive for receptors, you have a better prognosis because they can treat you after your surgery with medication that will counter those effects. But if you're negative, there are fewer treatment options. They tend to be much more aggressive cancers, and you're much more likely to die from them. So I would really love to know why some women get those cancers. I don't think we do know that yet, but uh, they're devastating. Yeah, the research apparently is still 
you know, they're yeah. undergoing that. But apparently three is the magic number for disparities that exist in the black community <laughs> because we say, you know, they're three times more likely to have maternal child, you mm-hmm. know, morbidity and mortality. And um, they're three times more likely likely to develop the triple negative type of cancer. And so speaking of threes in a nutshell, so black women are younger at diagnosis. They have more aggressive types of cancer and higher mortality rates because those cancers are tough to treat. Right. They're not, as Shoshana said, they don't respond to um, some of the focal treatments that we would usually provide. Um, and the rate for Latinx population is lower than non-Hispanic whites. And I say non-Hispanic whites because, you know, Hispanic population is not monolithic. And so we come in all shades mm-hmm. and, um, and sort of ethnic backgrounds. Um, but there's a 20% lower incidence, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, it's what I also found was interesting in my research was that um, there's a higher incidence in Latinx groups residing in the U.S. than of their country of origin. Oh. And um, so you would think if, if, for example, a Mexican woman's living here, but she comes from a country where that's not very, then that would be the same for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't understood totally just like the, in the like the the triple negative isn't quite understood totally with the black population but it may be related to them having social issues here mm-hmm. motherhood breastfeeding weight mm-hmm. and weight gain once you come to this country cuz such a different diet we like to eat mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not always what's good for us right sometimes residing in food deserts eating a lot of fast food all kinds of things like that that can really be have an effect mm-hmm. And so the thought by the researchers is that as they become affected by lifestyle influences that, um, you know, their living conditions, their socioeconomics, the access to care, that kind of thing, that the rates are going to, like the prediction is the rates will rise in that population too. And it's not just protective to be of that population, but also where you are, how you are living mm-hmm. is going to have uh, some influence Apparently, Asians and Pacific Islanders have the lowest rate of breast cancer. Yep. And so um, that's just a wonderful thing. But <laughs> we don't, you yeah. know, there needs to be more work um, work done on that. Uh, I, I wanted to just mention real quick, because I know I'll forget. That's, you know, I said to someone the other day, my mind isn't as long as my finger. And she said, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> It's an, it's an expression. <laughs> but anyways, um, there is a group in this area called Sis- Sisters Journey, mm-hmm. and it is um, a group for women of color um, who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. And they I have two aunts who are members and um, many friends who are members, and it's an unfortunate sorority yeah. to kind of be in. Um, they produce a beautiful calendar every year to raise funds and help support women of color in this struggle, like if they need help whatever kind of way, financially mm-hmm. or just emotionally or whatever. And so Sister's Journey, I encourage you, if you have any extra funds to make a donation, to speak to that. That's off topic, but I know because, Very cool. because I don't have that long mind, I would forget. We like but, that. We like a shout out. <laughs> go ahead and talk to us a little bit about um, the genetics piece. Yeah, I mean, so we had already touched on this a little bit, but we know that a woman's risk of breast cancer nearly doubles if she has a first-degree relative, so a mother, sister, or daughter who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, that being said, less than 15% of women who get breast cancer have a family member diagnosed with it. So um, Shoshana had already spoken to this, if she had a family history of breast cancer, which it sounds like she did. Um, I don't know. I mean... We haven't really talked about BRCA1, BRCA2, that kind of thing, and and what that can mean for patients. I don't know if you're comfortable speaking to that at all, Shoshana. I can talk about that. Um, So, you know, some families, as you say, there are a lot of families where there's breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Some of them have a lot of cancers, breast and ovarian, Mm -hmm. or multiple members of the family who've had breast cancer. And so they are often offered genetic screening to find out if they carry a genetic mutation. Mm-hmm. It used to be just two mutations, the BRCA1 and BRCA2. Mm-hmm. Now it's, I think it's blossomed to like 34 different genetic mutations that they can look at. Yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, I'll put in a plug for people who've been tested for BRCA or, you know, and have a lot of uh, family history. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's worth going into again and getting another round of genetic counseling to mm-hmm. see if you would benefit from 
being checked for some of the newer mutations that they mm-hmm. found. And that's something that happened with me between – so I had testing the first time, but I also was retested with way more tests the Spec- second time. Kind of, yeah. Still negative, which is kind of weird for someone who had had it twice. But it is important mm-hmm. to know that. Um, and But it's also important what you said, which is that less than 15 percent of women who have breast cancer have, have a family cancer. history. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard set of rules to mm-hmm. keep in mind because people say – you know, well, I can't have breast cancer because no, nobody in my family gets that. Right. And I'm like, I know that. Right. But <laughs> it could still happen. Well, and or it's the opposite where people are obsessed with it. It becomes yeah. a part of their family's journey. Like in my family, it's just my grandmother who mm-hmm. had breast cancer, but she was diagnosed when my mom was pregnant with me. So everyone associated my like birth with her cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it's this journey that's like, you know, sort of sauce being a huge part of my whole life. Yeah. I don't know that we're like obsessed with and it's it's kind of like it's just her, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also is the mutations are well the BRCA mutations in particular are more common in some ethnic groups, mm-hmm. particularly Ashkenazi Jews. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the numbers are, but much higher mm-hmm. rates of BRCA positivity and breast cancer mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sometimes think when I'm sitting in synagogue and I look around at the other Jewish women it feels like wondering. 80% of us have had breast cancer. And in fact, when I had my second diagnosis, I was talking to someone and she was like, oh, well, my mother had it three times. Oh my and gosh. she was like 90 years old. She'd survived it all. Wow. So that made me feel really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a helpful thing she to hear. from good stock. But um, yeah, anyway, so the genetics, I don't know if you wanted more detail than that. The, the most important thing is to, I think, to go to somebody who can explain to you mm-hmm. what right. they're doing, what the testing will and will not tell you. What it's going to cost you if it is going to cost you something. Yeah. Um, and that's often an issue that keeps people from going for screening. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what the benefits of having the information will be. Right. Because um, once you have that information, you have it. So you, you, have may, it. you may find out something you didn't want to know. Exactly. <laughs> you can't unsee it. Exactly. Right. And I, I yeah. And I've, I've now been in the situation where I've had to. I've had a number of very young patients who are BRCA positive. Mm-hmm. So talking them through, you know, the next steps for themselves, they're like 26 years old mm-hmm. and getting mammograms and mm-hmm. MRIs. And when do you have your babies? And when do you think about having mastectomies prophylactically mm-hmm. and possibly having your ovaries removed? Mm-hmm. And a lot of decisions that you have to make. And you're a kid, basically. You're still just right. starting out in your life, right. trying to make decisions of how to build your life, not mm-hmm. how to keep yourself from dying from cancer. Yeah. I had a faculty member from, from Yale who um, was positive. She tested BRCA positive. So then the rest of the family went for testing, and they were and they were all positive mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so they started scheduling... Um, and they had members who had died. Yes, mm. yeah. So that was kind of what started the whole thing. Yeah. And then they did the testing, and then, and they started to um, schedule their surgeries because she was going to have her ovaries removed and she was going to have a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And yep. um, they just said we just want it all cleared. And they were kind of. Um, it was like a family project because everybody can't be down at the same time. Right, because they have to be there to help right, each other. You want to support one another, but. I was just fascinated by how she just revealed that information. We, I wasn't in school at the time. This was long after. She was one of my mentors and, and advisors when I was in school. And um, how she just sort of matter-of-factly passed it along, which I thought, this is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. We need to be transparent. We need to talk to people and not um, sort of, you know, put your coat up and whisper, yeah. or, you know, yeah. some, behind everyone's back or whatever. We need yeah. this information and we need to be open about speaking to it and right. not. And I think part of sometimes I think what prevents us is seeing our tetas, our boobs, our breasts as sexual uh-huh. equipment. And yeah. so first, before we see it as all the other purposes that mm-hmm. we have them for. And so, um, you know, I think we need to normalize that it's just like it's like an arm. It's like it's like a, a foot. Yeah, it's it's a part of our bodies. Sure, we can do a lot of things. People do intimate things with feet too. But, <laughs> but so true. you don't you don't have that kind of attitude about it. And right. So um, I would I would love to see a, a paradigm shift yeah. with regard to that. Absolutely. Yes. And of course, that has so many implications as well. We've talked about before, but like with nursing and you know feeding children and all of yes. that, the sec- the hyper sexualization of this like mound of fat. Right, right. That you can't <laughs> your body. expose it to feed your child. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. It's, 
Well, that's another that's another episode. Totally. <laughs> um, so I usually like to just again, I'm not the authority on this, just like, you know, PR is not the authority on all things black or black Latinx. Or less, exactly. But we like to sort of represent our crews a little bit. So um, I always like to touch on LGBTQIA plus community and population. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when I was doing my research, there's not a lot of specific research as per usual um, mm-hmm. in that general population. But I did find one study um, that looked at specifically lesbian and bisexual women and trans men. And they do um, have some sort of predisposing or or possible factors in their communities that may be increasing their risk. So we've been talking a lot about um, the genetic piece, but there's other risks as well. Um, And so things like an increased likelihood of being overweight, being nulliparous, which is never having a pregnancy or Mm -hmm. a child, um, non-lactating, as well as an increased incidence of potentially smoking, alcohol use, things like that. Um, Additionally, this population, and we've talked about this before in almost every um, sort of conversation we have, is sometimes hesitant to seek care because you can feel like a freak and an anomaly and not comfortable. You know, if you're a trans man going into a GYN office surrounded by women or pregnant women or whatever, you may feel uncomfortable in that scenario. Scenario. And so you may not be going for your visits and then you may not be getting your mammograms. And, you know, that sort of sets you up as well to potentially miss those sort of early diagnoses. Um, and so I guess I was just wondering, Shoshana, um, do you counsel your patients on prevention strategies? What do you typically say? And how do you sort of teach people about that self-breast exam or like that familiarity with um, with your breasts? I usually uh, I usually take the opportunity of while I'm doing a breast exam to talk t- about it with the patient. So mm-hmm. I'll say, when's the last time you checked your breasts? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll say, never, it freaks me out. Or they say, oh, I do it all the time. And then I'll talk about, I say exactly what you said, which is I am not, because everyone to a woman <laughs> says, I don't think I would notice if there was something there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I say, it's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's about knowing what your body feels like, what's happening there. And I guarantee that if something pops up that you've never felt before, it's going to ring a bell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sometimes will share my own personal experience, mm-hmm. not always, but I'll say, you know, I know exactly what you think because I always had bump, lumpy breasts, blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, I felt you knew things. when there was something yes. that was different. And, and I was... think and I've seen enough women for whom that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So that's that's basically what I do. And I talk about, you know, the timing. It's best to do it if you're still menstruating to do it after your period. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ever find something and you're not sure, do not hesitate to come in and let us take a look because you're not supposed to be the expert. You don't have to be right. the expert. Right. Right. We'll help you sort it out and figure out if it's something that we need to take care of or not or whether we can reassure you and say, oh, yeah, that's just a, a little fluid-filled right. cyst and right. you don't right. have to worry about it. I think that's huge because I think some people don't know, like, if I feel something, what am I supposed to do? Right. <laughs> well, they mostly tell me they're going to just panic and they're like, if I find something, I'm just not going to know what to do. I'm just going to panic. Well, here's something interesting I found, um, cu- cu- a sort of a cultural difference. So... By and large, the black population uses a washcloth mm-hmm. in the shower mm-hmm. tub to wash with. And I find that um, other people don't necessarily, mm-hmm. other cultures or whatever, don't necessarily, they use their hands. Yeah. And so I remember I would tell my patients, especially those of color, okay, so do you use a washcloth? Yes. Can you put your washcloth down and oh. wash your breasts with your hands? Oh, gosh, that is something That's I've good never point. even thought so of. So that you can know your breasts and be yeah. familiar with your yeah. breasts and feel that. And I know that, that usually they're comfortable with that because that's not one of their private spaces mm-hmm. and that they want to scrub, scrub, scrub clean, but they're willing to do that. And I said, that's how you're going to really become familiar. So if you're just showering and washing with your soapy hands, yeah. your breasts every day, barehanded, um, then you it, that you'll become very familiar with them, mm. and I didn't have to say that necessarily to the other to the other population. Like I said, we're not monolithic, so I my children were raised washing with a washcloth, mm-hmm. and um, and their dad does not because where he comes from they don't mm-hmm. do that. And uh, now of the five of us, I am the only one who still uses a washcloth. <laughs> They're like nobody has time for that, and they just <laughs> go ahead and. 
um, take care of things the way they want I, to take I care of things. I worked with a woman of color who had her kids use, I think, three different washcloths. Oh, uh-huh. we use a different one for our face well, that makes than sense. for our yeah. other parts of our body. And then I think there was one for sort of the general body. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> it's like, well, no wonder your kids are rebelling. That's an awful lot to think about yeah, when you're in the shower. It it's a lot of laundry, too. I remember. Because we changed right, like, every daily. Right. I remember going to someone's house once, like in, for like a sleepover or something, and they gave me a washcloth, and I was like, what do I do what with this? What the fuck do I do with this? <laughs> yeah. When we go on vacation. I didn't use a washcloth. If, if we go on vacation, hotels generally will give them to you, but, yeah. you know, Airbnbs or whatever will not. And so I just know I'm packing, packing, I'm packing enough for everybody. Wow. Yeah. And my son was my best friend um, who was Puerto Rican. She, she and I have a few best friends, but one <laughs> of them, she was, uh, he went over her house to s- sleep over with her son. And so she's giving them a bath and I walk in when she's giving them a bath and she's got her bare hand <laughs> and she's just going at it with both right. kids. And I'm thinking that is peculiar. You don't use anything, no loofah, no washcloth, no anything. And she said, no, how do you even know you're getting it clean? And I'm thinking, how do you know you're not? And it's just one of those differences oh my gosh, that, wow. that people don't think about. Yep. But that is a suggestion for those That's patients of idea. yours. Yeah. I want to bring it back one to one more thing, which I would probably be in big trouble with Tracy if I didn't mention. Oh, it's coming up. Okay, I'll keep my it's mouth next. shut then. It's okay. next. <laughs> um, so where were we? We were talking about LGBT. Um, yeah, you were yeah. talking about self exams mm-hmm. and prevention stuff. Like I don't know if you mentioned that. I mean, I will tell people sometimes if they're really worried. Like I have some, you know, you have some patients who are hyper aware and they're always like, okay, okay, is it time for you to do my breast exam? Like they want you to get your hands on their yeah. breasts because they just feel like you have this magical yeah. locating sense in your right. hands to know we if have they have radar. cancer. Right. So um, for a lot of those patients, I try to look at the things they're doing right and right. sort of remind them like i'll be like you know the good news is you've had a couple babies you've you know nursed those babies you are not a smoker you're a healthy weight you know all these things help decrease your risk and i try to sort of like you know encourage encourage that yeah yeah i'm not like going to someone who's overweight and being like well you're overweight so you're totally gonna get breast cancer because it's not you know a thing but (laughs) i don't know i feel like that's what i do anyone else have any little tips or tips for providers as far as prevention? Well, I think that that's just important in general health, providing health care for women yeah. is to try to get the positive going first, give like five positives right. for your one negative kind <laughs> right. of thing. Um, so I think that that's probably Yeah, because they know, common. they know that being overweight is not right. healthy. And, yeah. you know, if, if alcohol is an issue, we talk about that. Mm-hmm. And alcohol is implicated in lots of cancers. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, certainly yeah. in breast cancer. And now apparently there's no healthy amount of alcohol we're supposed to be drinking, according mm-hmm. to the studies. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we totally disregard exactly. studies. That's <laughs> when we say it, that's when we say that's all hocus pocus. Yeah. That's, that's when we look at those um, like Smuckers things where they talk about the hundred year old woman and they're like, and she drinks a glass of wine every day. And you're like, well, there she's a hundred. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Those celebrations they do on the news. (laughs) Um, Sure. We don't talk a lot, typically discuss uh, cis men much on this podcast, only in the course of being partners and that kind of thing. But they're not immune, of course, we all know, to breast cancer, although less likely to develop breast cancer than cis women. um, The American Cancer Society still estimates that in 2021, roughly 2,700, there were like that many new cases of invasive breast cancer in men. Um, or in 2021, they'll, they're estimating that that will be, um, that that many will be diagnosed. And that their estimates are based on previous years, mm-hmm. of course, and experience. And 530 will die from it. Now, how do you predict dying and all of that? Well, there are ways. Mm-hmm. Um Take it from a former underwriter mm-hmm. who's that's what was our job to predict when you were going to go based on something. Um, did you meet any men in your journey? Um, the only man I know is the husband of one of our colleagues. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I think about him. I don't like if he wasn't married to a midwife, would he have gotten care as quickly as he did? Because mm-hmm. I, my guess is that most cis men if they feel something in that part of their body, mm-hmm. they're going to assume it's nothing, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't hurt usually, mm-hmm. right? You know, it doesn't have any scary symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I would, my guess would be that they delay. There's there's a big delay, delay. in diagnosis. Sure, sure. Um, although 
this guy, I think between himself being somewhat connected to the healthcare mm-hmm. field and his wife saying, oh, you, you got to get that biopsy mm-hmm. ASAP. Um, but no, I don't. I haven't met other men. I'm sure they're out there. I just don't yeah. know them. Do we have uh, any ideas? Just like a, a nanosecond brainstorm that mm-hmm. what can we do to ensure men are aware? Like there's, you know, it would be awesome if there was a a campaign mm-hmm. on television or in print media, um, just reminding men to check their breasts. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they don't think of, you know, I know it's weird because they don't think of themselves as having breast tissue. So that's the right. first thing. Everybody has breast tissue. Right. Um, so you can get breast chest. cancer. Yeah. You check your balls, check your boobs. <laughs> yeah. You don't yeah, tell anybody if you don't want unless you have chest. something there. Right. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about trans men because I think what what happens when you change your gender, mm-hmm. you kind of you're trying you're removing yourself from your original mm-hmm. anatomy, mm-hmm. I, I would think. And yeah. there's a distancing. And so I can't quite picture those guys doing a lot of breast checks because right. they want they put that behind and them. And especially if they have top surgery. And yes, right. Once they especially once they have top that surgery. Their risk is kind of gone. That away out went that with the with right. the boobs. Right. So so I would, I guess I, that's something to remember to talk to those mm-hmm. clients about. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. Don't, don't forget. I mean, you should check your whole body for lumps and bumps, Absolutely. I guess. But there are some areas that are more uh, prone. Yeah. I mean, as a mama of boys, I definitely try to tell them, like, we talk a lot about privacy. We talk a lot about our bodies and different parts that, you know, are sort of more private parts and things like that. But we really try to encourage them to, if they see or feel something or notice something on their bodies, Mm -hmm. to let us know. Because there have been times where, you know, they have like a tick on them for whoever knows. You know, like, so so just telling them at a young age, like, you can't ignore your body. You can't just like get in the shower for four seconds. You have to like really (laughs) wash yourself and take a look. You know, if they're not comfortable, you know, one of my kids is very comfortable with me being all up in his stuff he loves me to be there when he's naked the other one is very private so you know encouraging them um boys and girls of course but i mean we're talking to the you know male population with breast cancer you know encouraging them to let people know from a young age like it's okay if there's something going on with your body you should check it out you know because i think sometimes that like there might be this masculine thing that's sort of like well i'm fine you know i'm just gonna like ignore it right I don't know any men like that. Cough, cough. My husband. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely are on the delay side of the spectrum in ter- when it comes to seeking care and right. getting physicals and just doing, you know, n- normal stuff, which is why even with prostate cancer, right. you know, the rate could probably be lower mm-hmm. if they would go in and go get it done. Um, they're kind of squeamish about all of that, which right. we have to teach normalcy. Yeah. Just like you're trying to do with your boys. Um, I think one of the reasons is that women have to come to the of course, of GYN course. providers. Yeah. We're drawn because, in for many reasons, right. starting with we're, menstruation. We're, yeah, we're held hostage, but, you know, having pap smears and if you want your birth control pill refilled mm-hmm. or whatever. Men don't have that equivalent thing. So right. once their mommy is no longer making appointments for <laughs> right. them, right. then they've got to, it's got to come from them. And yeah. why would you if you feel fine? Sure, yeah. sure. So we we need to work on that. One thing we didn't talk about, and I'm just thinking about now, um, as we're talking about breast cancer, is you um, had mentioned nodes. And when you say nodes, you mean lymph Lymph nodes. nodes. Um, Now, some people don't need any lymph nodes removed or just a few. Some people need many, many, many. And that can impact our our body. So I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So usually what they'll do if you have cancer... They almost always do a sentinel node biopsy, meaning they put dye in the breast that goes to the lymph node that's likely to be the first the first defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll take one or two of those nodes out. They'll do what they called a call a um, I'm losing the the word for it. When they send it to the lab right away, mm-hmm. and then they get an answer. Pathology yeah, too. but it's a cold. Oh, but it's like a cold, a cold, frozen, frozen. Of those, a, they yeah. do a frozen section, <laughs> so they'll do a quick, quick and dirty look and send a message back to the surgeon. These are this is benign or it's got cancer. If it's positive for cancer, they'll then do a more extensive lymph node mm-hmm. dissection. And I think they're trying to do less than they used to do in the past mm. because what happens when you take a lot of lymph nodes out? You can have problems and pathology yes. secondary to that. Right. Um, the lymph nodes have a really important they have a purpose. purpose. Yeah. And um, 
So that is something that some women and, you know, they'll sometimes say, oh, I had 14 out of 16 nodes positive. Yeah. So that's part of the staging of the of the cancer and helps determine the uh, treatment. Um, but if usually if it's not a very if it's not metastasized, they'll have a negative lymph node and you'll mm -hmm. only have one or two right. taken. Although you can have issues even with just one or two lymph nodes mm -hmm. taken out. Lymphedema is the thing right. yeah. it sometimes gets so to. That's when you sometimes will see women with a lot of swelling, swelling. on one mm -hmm. side, especially, you know, in their arms and hands and things like that. So yeah. I did want to kind of touch on that because I realized we hadn't said anything about no. it. Yeah, I personally important. think that anybody who has breast surgery and any lymph nodes removed should have a consultation with a specialist who does lymphedema mm -hmm. treatment, mm -hmm. physical therapists usually. Mm -hmm. um, it's not standard, but par partly based on my experience and partly based on my patients, you almost always get some kind of swelling or mm. lymphedema-like yeah. symptoms. Mm -hmm. And just learning a few exercises and a few techniques and things like don't let anybody take blood out of that mm -hmm. arm. Right. Wear a lymphedema sleeve if you're right, going to do X, right, right. Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And that's an area that we haven't been great with. No, uh, we're not well-versed in that. No, and no. I think that's a really good suggestion to mm -hmm. what you don't know, you refer. And so um, right. so that people can get the best care still. Right. Um, and there are some really good people in the area who do that work, which is nice. Great. So, Shoshana, how has surviving breast cancer changed your care as a provider? Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I am much more compassionate and empathetic, and I never know whether it's just because I'm getting older and more experienced or because of the things that I've experienced in my life. I mean, you know, when you have health issues and everybody's had some kind of health issue mm -hmm. and you get good care, you realize how important that mm -hmm. is yep. and how, you know, nourishing and it makes a huge difference in a time in your life when you're not able to take care of yourself necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I do think I've I learned that, and I do feel like I have brought that to my practice. Sometimes it's a little hard because sometimes people are kind of whining, and mm. you're like, dude, you have a benign cyst. <laughs> it's nothing. <laughs> Don't right. torture me. Yeah. Um, but, but then you think... <laughs> because... I am most important in this equation. I am I'm important, and I've lost both of my boobs, so you got nothing to talk about. Yeah. So, but then, you know, you think she's upset about something. Yeah. And yeah. it's about the fear, and that often is what it comes down to. So you can talk to them about their fear. A lot right. of women are really afraid that they're going to have breast cancer. And that, that sends their anxiety levels Way high. to the right, to the sky. Which um. is probably not great for their, I mean, I think one of the other prevention things is stress reduction if you can make that happen in your life. I do think that chronic stress is probably not great for lots of diseases, including cancers. Well, that that's kind of um, leads me to what does self-care, what are you doing for self-care? What am I doing for self-care? Uh, well, this is a very fascinating time to talk about that as we're in the in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been a good time because I've had a lot of time to think about it. Meditation, which I'm trying to cultivate a daily practice. I'm not hitting every day, but I do nice. a lot, and it makes a huge difference. Meditation gives you, gives me the ability to put a little bit of distance between my initial reaction and how I respond, and I need that because I can go right into we a tailspin. We could all use that Everybody probably. probably. Yeah, yeah. Exercise, and again, that looks different for different people. For me right now, it's walking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not ready to go back into a gym yet, although I know, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure when that'll happen. That they're opening, but and we've been trying to coordinate a walk for a, a, probably a decade now. You and I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have different days off. That's the problem. Oh, those darn jobs. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know. I someday I want to be independently wealthy. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I think that's too late. And for women, the other thing that's so hard, and I don't know how to tell people to do it, is learning to say no. Oh, yes, that is, that is colossal. That having a process, gets a clap. <laughs> yeah, having a process for yourself where you're not just doing things because you have to, you should, it's expected. Because those things, that feeling leads to stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, doing sure. things because you want to, yeah. you're looking forward to taking a walk with your friend. That's a whole different thing. As PR always says to me, stop being a palm tree. Sometimes you, do, sometimes you just got to stand straight and tall and, yeah. and say no. And say, and no. say no. It's really the hardest say thing. Say no, thank you. Say, and I've learned ways now all these years to say, because I was one of those yes 
people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've learned that it's not going to work out. So I'm cushioning it, but yeah. I'm not doing it. Right. You got that? Right, 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 right. <laughs> you don't have to be mean about it. But, right. And you can even, I'd love to get to a state where we can all just say, you know what, right now, I just, I just can't do that. Yeah. Right. That's not for me right now. And it is. It's hard to say that to your friends and family and colleagues, but sometimes you have to. Yeah, I think that that's super important. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that's that's a, that's about all we have time for. Yeah, it's it's. We could a, keep talking. I would love a, to, but <laughs> it's been an awesome, stimulating, great conversation. Mm-hmm. I've learned things, which I always do on all of our podcasts. I hope we have taught some things to our listeners, and. Um, yeah, that was awesome. We're grateful so thank you. for your presence. Thank you. This was really fun. Anytime yeah. you want to come back oh, and be yeah. an expert guest <laughs> on something else. And we're definitely going to get Dr. Fine on here. She would love oh it. <laughs> yeah. And she's brilliant. She's I was brilliant. just going to say, she knows. She's just so I brilliant. I think she actually knows everything. <laughs> Emily, if you're listening, I think you know everything. <laughs> and she can um, just sort of put it in little acorns That's for right. you so quickly. I, right. I watched her do that. So yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Anyways. All right. Well, we would like to thank Baobab Tree Studios, Kenny Blackwell for our song, our friends, family, and all of you who make this podcast possible. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Midwife Crisis Podcast, all one word, or email us at midwifecrisispodcast at gmail.com. We love your feedback and your comments, your criticisms, your concerns. Give it all to us, your questions. That's right. So until next time, get to know your breasts. And save the tetas. Don't be afraid (laughs) to talk about them. Bye. Bye.